is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, a big grain deal signed between Russia and China. We'll have the details shortly. And firefighters working to contain multiple fires on the mid-north coast, which have already burnt up to 25,000 hectares. Volunteers say the fires are under control, but they're hoping it doesn't flare up. Oh, pretty full on, pretty hectic. Yeah, pretty nervous and makes everyone pretty pretty agile. We're just hoping that nothing changes and, and um, burns us out. We're lucky at the at the time. You can always send us a text uh, on the country at zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. We'll also look at uh, animal diseases, uh, some efforts to stop them in their tracks or at least contain them if they do get uh, discovered. More on that shortly. Shortly, we'll also hear from New South Wales new pig feral pig control coordinator as well. That's all coming up in the program. But first up today, there are reports this week that China and Russia have signed their largest grain supply contract to buy 70 million tonnes of grain worth $40 billion. For the last few years, China has been the largest buyer of Australian wheat. So what does this new Russia-China deal mean for our international grain exports? Agricultural market analyst Andrew Whitelaw says while this is a significant deal, China will still need to buy a lot of grain from Australia. It's significant for one thing, and I think the one thing it's significant for is that, you know, that increasing relationship between these sort of states, you know, Russia and China, North Korea and China, and uh, I guess it's, it's, it's a sign of the changing sort of geopolitical landscape around the world. You know, Russia has sort of, in the last couple of years, really reverted to being a bit of a pariah state. And uh, it looks like the relationship with China is going to become more and more important for them. Does it still leave plenty of room for other countries to export grain into China, though? I mean, it sounds like a lot of grain, but in the scheme it- of it, is it? Look, on, on first perspective, 70 million tonnes, that's a lot of grain. However, you start to look into it, you know, it's over 12 years. You know, if, if it's just spread evenly over those 12 years, you know, you're talking 5.8 million tonnes, still sounds like a lot, but it's not that much in the grand scheme of things. Because China in recent years, the import volumes of grains have been nothing short of astronomical. So if we look at the period, say, 2016 to 2020, you know, it didn't even get above 15 million tonnes of wheat, barley and corn combined. But in recent years, you know, we've seen 2021, you know, over 50 million tonnes. Last year was, you know, about 35 million tonnes. So these are big volumes of of grain that they have as demand. Mm. And that's and, you know, we would expect that potentially continue to increase as their their wealth increases and they um, and more of their pigs go in, for instance, go into you know, more intensive, more professional outfits, less swill feeding. So five, let's call it five and a half, 5.8 million tons a year. It is big, but it is only a, a relatively short percentage of the overall, overall sort of volume that's going into there. And we've been very good in the last couple of years. We've had no barley, obviously, uh, but China will be our biggest customer for barley next year, probably. Uh, but we have been the biggest, uh, you know, seller of wheat into there. They've been buying astronomical volumes of Australian wheat. I think the the latest figures I could see it was six point four million tons of Australian wheat 
uh, for October 22 to September 23 went into China. So it's a pretty big market, but then there was also a, a significant trade deal done between the US and China buying US wheat. So how secure is that footing of, of having access into the Chinese market for Australian wheat growers? Look, I think we, the door is open. And I think that's the important thing. Obviously, in the last couple of years, the door wasn't open for barley. So mm. we couldn't get any barley in there. Regardless of what price we were, we were never going to get into any barley into there. But I think one thing that people have to remember, and this is the key thing, grain is grain. As long as it meets the quality requirements, you know, if somebody wants milling wheat of a certain protein, they're then going to look at the price. And the price is going to be the key determinant in any commodity trade. In the last couple of years, Australian grain has been cheap. Australian wheat has been cheap. We've had some big crops. We've been cheap. And that is attractive for Chinese buyers. At the moment, yep, there's been a couple of large purchases of U.S. wheat by China. And the reason was because it was cheap. And at the moment, Russian wheat is cheap. So there's a bit of a, a, a pattern emerging that people buy grain when it's cheap. You know, if we look at it in the wider picture, if we look at the main exporters of grain, which are basically eight countries which export the lion's share of all of our wheat around the world, if we look at their stocks, including our own, they're actually pretty tight. So we've pretty much got the lowest levels of stocks globally within the exporters than we've had in about 12 years or maybe more. So... It doesn't take much when things are tight for things to really go off. Look, what I'd be saying is if you're a farmer and you're, and you're harvesting, I'd be concentrating on the harvesting just now. Uh, prices in Australia relative to, say, wheat futures or, or physically around the world are pretty strong. You've just got to look at it and see, is it profitable for you to sell? Andrew Whitelow, who is an agricultural market analyst with Episode 3, talking there to Joe Prendergast uh, about uh, reports Russia and China have just signed their largest grain supply contract. It's 11 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, firefighters are working to contain multiple fires on the mid-north coast, which have already burnt through 25,000 hectares of land and claimed a life. The New South Wales Rural Fire Service says the fires are under control, but they're fighting along a wide 110-kilometre fire front, and they're concerned about weather changes over the weekend. We've spoken a couple of times this week to farmer David Duff and his son Campbell about the fire that hit their Taruka property on Monday. While the property is safe for now, David said this is only the beginning of their recovery. He told Tina Quinn the scars of the previous Black Summer bushfires are still there and the community is finding it tough going. It's not fair that the district has to go through this again, you know, and I hope it extinguishes, but this thing's got over an 80 kilometre front on it and it's, it's going to the north of us and it's going to the south of us and then we've got other fires out at um, Hathead. So it's on both sides of Kempsey, really, and... Um, you know, if, there's only one thing going to pull it up, and that's going to be rain. Uh, they can defend, you know, houses and that sort of thing, and lives in houses is probably the main thing, um, lives and houses. So that's basically where it's at. You can't you can't stop this thing. It's um, 
it's a pretty ferocious beast. Are you planning on moving the cattle around a bit or, no, or sort no. of getting them out of here? Or? No, well, <laughs> because 19 so fresh in our minds, we've got a plan already. We know what we've got to do. We did it before. Our perimeters are still up, basically, whereas last year, uh, last time, I should say, um, all our perimeters went and everybody's perimeters went, so all the cattle were boxed up and everything. We're lucky we've got the river where there's permanent water. So water and feed, that's what we've just got to do. And um, How are you guys going for feed? Well, we had none before the fire, but we've got a bloody side less now. Anything we did have is all soot. You know, We had some pockets of dry standing feed and we were making use of that through supplements and that sort of thing. And our cattle are pretty strong, really, even though we're in, you know, the, I think we were drought declared last week. Dam water's a big problem. Um, most of the dams are virtually useless um, as far as stock water goes. No, we'll just keep them in a containment paddock where we can get good fresh water to them. We've got to pump out of the river and troughs and that sort of thing. So they're holding up? They won't if we don't start feeding them, and we've got to start feeding tomorrow. Uh, unfortunately for a lot of people in the area, and this is the point I wanted to make, is, is that um, people are suffering, you know, I mean, mentally and financially, and I'm not necessarily talking about my own personal situation. What I'm talking about is the whole community, and we're in the cattle industry here, and the cattle industry is on its knees. We can't get decent returns, you know, they're absolutely woeful, well below cost of production and... The drought's one thing, but the money drought's something else, you know, and I think that's where people are feeling it the most is they're just so um, devastated by this because they don't know where they're going to go to next. Like, feeding cattle costs a lot of money, and unfortunately, when you start, you don't know where the finish is. A lot of people say, why don't you sell them and get rid of them or, you know, and then restock later on, but if you sell them now, you'll only get tuppence for them, and when you go to buy them again, they'll be worth a fortune, and... No business can sustain that sort of variability in the market, you know. We're a bit lucky that we've got a few different irons in the fire. We grow soybeans for human consumption, and that's been really good. We had a really good summer crop, and that's filled in a couple of holes from the two crops that we lost with the floods. But, you know, most people just rely on cattle, and there's no income. So there's going to be an animal welfare issue, and there's going to be a societal issue as well. Campbell, so you're fifth generation, are you? Yeah, yeah. When you look at continuing on the legacy of your family, how do you feel about it in times in times like this? Yeah, well, obviously as a farmer, you're you're always optimistic about you know continuing on what the family has done for those five generations. But uh, it's definitely times like this that that challenge that mental fortitude and and going through through th- things like these for the fourth year. Um, you know, it is it is challenging and and we've got to look towards the future and there's got to be some big changes in the future for it to be sustainable Uh, the management of fuel load here on the east coast is it needs to be taken seriously you know what we're getting is a divide between those people that are in in the rural areas running a business and 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 managing the land and then you've got those that aren't and and ultimately our business and our legacy here is is going to be challenged into the future with 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 that sort of thing with people uh, that can't manage their land that ultimately will destroy our business and destroy our ability to continue farming that's what we're looking down the barrel at now you know whether or not it's climate change yes it's probably taking into consideration but i think you know i was out there where the fires came through and you know it's 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 just absolute devastation i mean that the cattle that unfortunately were 
were out there, you know, they were, you know, severely affected. They needed to be euthanized. There was a, a dozen wallabies that were out there that needed to be shot because there was no surviving that. And, and I think there's a, there's a bit of an issue with, with wanting to protect the landscape and wanting to protect the trees, but locking it up and, and not managing it isn't the answer because it's got the negative consequences for everyone. And, I mean, you can have a bit of a look around here and see what we do with the land. It's short, it's managed, you know. We were able to sort of, you know, fight the fire out in the open, but out there where, where nobody's doing anything, there's no possibility of, of trying to. And then your father also mentions the skyrocketing overheads at the moment in, in terms of feed and getting returns back on cattle. Does that also make you consider your future? Yeah, it does make me uh, very concerned. I am you know, work part-time as a veterinarian in, in town here, so I still got my day job to make the farm worthwhile. And, you know, we're here to support you know, my parents in, in, in what they're doing and what they do, we, they do a bloody good job at. But it's just unfortunate that... You know, the cattle market is so low and no one saw that coming. And, you know, to try and run a business, I'd love somebody to come here and show us how to run a farm business in in what we're facing um, in terms of commodity prices back and, and these natural disasters and the cost of inputs. I mean, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that it's bloody tough. Taruka cattle farmer Campbell Duff speaking there with Tina Quinn. She's also spent this week in the area and met up with some RFS volunteers, many of them farmers, including Brandon Tyne and his mother Maria from Warren. Oh, pretty full on, pretty hectic, yeah. Pretty nervous and makes everyone pretty pretty agile. How's your property fed? Um, it's survived so far. We're just hoping that nothing changes and... and um, burns us out we're lucky at the at the time so none of your property was burnt or not yet no not, and we're hoping that it stays that way and are you guys moving cattle or are you moving feed out or to try and sort of prepare um not at the moment we're helping everyone else at the moment so that's the priority really that's all we can sort of look at so it's a bit of a community effort so everybody's sort of coming together that that has the ability to help is it that's right yeah yeah that's what the community is all about helping each other were you guys here during the 2019 fires we were yes and it come very close to the house at home i was here mum was away um we were lucky lucky that i was here come home from the races in at kempsey we were all a bit blind drunk at the time (laughs) (laughs) it was pretty pretty exciting then um yeah we sure you sobered up very quickly Bloody oath, the sweat was flying out, that's for sure. <laughs> so you joined the RFS after the 2019 fires. You, you really obviously wanted to get involved in helping your community? Yeah, just to get some more knowledge, not just for the community, but for my own family farm. And, you know, we're generations of farms here. Um, my sister's here with her husband and her family, and my brother lives here. And, um, yeah, so just to have that knowledge and to help the community and your fellow farmers. A lot of our friends have lost lots of, you know, 80%, one's lost 80%, one's lost 85%. So you just can't fathom how they're feeling coming into the summer, feeding their cattle, horses, whatever animals they've got. I keep hearing from people that it's really the community's preparedness this time around which has really been such a game changer for people. Being on the RFS we've not long had a get ready day where we help the community prepare 
for fires, give them some information packs. They can come, talk to us, get some ideas. It's just about communicating and letting them know what they can do and just helping them and just being there for them and listening to them. Um, I feel that a lot more people this time around have got prepared a lot more since the last fires four years ago. And... um, it's, so it's not just the physical preparedness, I guess it's also the emotional, what you're talking about as well, because that's incredibly important, and the emotional scars of what happened in 2019 and, and what can happen in situations like this is is really important to think about as well. Yeah, just being there for each other, I find being a listening ear, you might not even have to say anything, but just to comfort them and so that they know that they can come to us anytime whether it be cooking whether it be helping fix a fence or move cattle or help feed cattle or whatever we just we just come together and be there for each other we, we become a hub because we are a community little community and knowing everybody well, we're on cattle farmer Maria Tyne and her son Brandon. They're watching the weather. Uh, the uh, weekend expected to uh, get a bit worse in terms of fire, uh, sit the fire situation with uh, warmer weather and uh, a bit windier as well. Uh, they were talking there with Tina Quinn. And a reminder, of course, to stay listening to ABC Local Radio this afternoon and over the weekend for any changes in the fire situation in uh, in that area in and around the mid-north coast. It's uh, coming up to 23 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Annie Guest. Join me for The World Today. Rockets and missiles flying between Israel and Gaza. Amid reports, 28 trucks will be allowed into the devastated territory. Queensland Indigenous leaders outraged over the state LNP dumping its support for treaty. And an Australian-led project records a radio wave galaxies away. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, it's showtime in Lismore with the North Coast National into its second day. Joining Kim Honan to record this uh, special report at the Beef Arena is Tara Coles, who's the 2022 North Coast National Young Woman. Tara represented Zone 1 at the Sydney Royal this year, where she was awarded the inaugural Show Announcers Academy Scholarship. Yeah, so for myself, I've been going around to as many shows across New South Wales, learning the announcing role. I think what I'm finding is it's a very male-dominated industry, so having a young woman come through the ranks is really important. Um, Hearing someone and a different voice over the radio here at the announcing at our local shows is really important, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it and can't wait to do many more shows ahead. Well, you're presenting, you're announcing here at the North Coast National, so if you hear this voice over the next few days, it's Tara Coles, uh, announcer at the show, expected, what, some 20,000 or more through the gates over the three days? That's right, I hope to see that as well. We have such a big show, we have the monster trucks, the FMX motocross, we saw wonderful cattle performances here yesterday as well as our horses in the ring, so it's such a jam-packed show, I think we'll see many people come through the gates and it's all about Back Lismore, which is our platform to get people to support our local businesses and community here after going through so much here in Lismore after the 2022 devastating floods, so it's all going really well and it's a wonderful day with great weather. 
Well, let's get into our first guest today. Um, we were at the Beef uh, Stud Cattle Arena here at North Coast National in Lismore. The chief steward is Rodney Gibson. Uh, so you've had, what, 250 entries this year? That's correct. We've got 250 uh, stud entries. We had uh, 76 lead steers yesterday. We have got sold an auction last night. Um, yeah, so we've got a pretty good, pretty good turnout for our stud stud beef show. It's probably the biggest stud beef show in New South Wales outside Sydney Royal this year in New South Wales. These cattle, 250 head, where have they come from, Rodney? So we've got them as far south as Tamworth, Ebor, um, out and out of the Brisbane Valley and the Darling Downs. <coughs> and uh, Tara, you're a beef cattle producer y- yourself. Do you Have you ever thought about showing cattle? Have you done that? Yeah, I have. I was lucky enough to um, present here with our own stud uh, previously, more like a decade ago. Uh, but um, it's great to see everyone out here and the upgrades to the ring that I'm looking at is incredible, um, which Rodney would know a little bit more about than myself. But it's great to see, um, yeah, the improvements that have gone into our beef cattle section here because uh, it's it's definitely a draw card for people to come to the North Coast National. Well, let's bring in a few of the producers and school students here. Indy Woods, she's in Year 10 at McLean High School. She's here as part of the uh, cattle team. So you've been here for a couple of days. How long have you camped here? Yeah, we got here on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon at about 12 o'clock. And what have you been doing for the last few days? Um, Just preparing animals, leading them, showing them. Yeah, and like I know that McLean High School is very good with their cattle and I've seen you as far as down as the Sydney Royal Easter Show. Tell us a little bit about all the shows that you get to go to and the type of read that you show. Yeah, so this year we went to Sydney Royal and Echo. Um, we also done all the little local shows as well. We mainly show Speckle Parks, but we have um, two stud Brufords and then we have all different breeds of steers. And how did you go yesterday in the parading and the school steers? Yeah, we did pretty well. A lot of the kids made it into the finals for their classes. Um, and our steer came third in his class, so that was pretty good, yeah. Your plans for today? Are you getting the cattle ready for the ring? Yeah, we just washed out some of the cattle that needed to be washed and then we're just going to finish clipping and then we're right to go. Right. Well, fantastic. Good luck today. We wish you the best. Thank you. Joining us now is Nicole Nichols from the Tukawal Charolais Stud, uh, one of the big winners here at uh, North Coast National. Uh, you picked up champion champion steers. Yes, last night we were showing um, steers in partnership with Lindsay View Limousins from up at Kyogle and at Findon Creek. And um, yeah, we were lucky enough to pick up grand champion steer. Yeah, and it's probably not the first time that steer has won. Um, we've had him at the local shows and he's picked up a few ribbons, but he hasn't picked up the big one. So he peaked just at the right time. That's right. And we know that there's a further component to the steers where they'll go to then be put on the hook. That's um, correct. Tell us a little bit about what they're looking for there. Um, so basically it's all about eating quality and beef and producing the best quality beef um, that we can. And on the North Coast, we've been renowned for producing good cattle and good beef in this region for years um some of the best we've been um successful with lots of different steers at lots of different shows that all have originated from the north coast well how did it go last night in in the auction oh the auction was great um it was really good very well supported by local businesses which was amazing and it's so good um to see the amount of school children and schools that are participating and to see their the support from their communities that come in and buy the steers from the schools and do you know how much you went for 
uh, the champion steer, it would be over twelve dollars. Yeah, and so you reckon he'll go okay on the hook? Um, all we can do is hope. Once they pull the hide off, it's in the lap of the carcass judging judges. So, yeah, yeah. But, but we've done our best. We'll try, hopefully. Josh and Kirsty had a really good show last night. They support a lot of schools and have sold a lot of show steers. And they actually won um, the champion steer we, with the steer we showed, but they also won the champion school steer was one of their steers and the reserve champion steer was actually one of their steers. So, yeah, they had a really good showing. Finally today we're going to catch up with a local producer from Ebor, Richard Ogilvie from Wongwibinda near Ebor. How are you going Richard? Yeah, I'm good thank you, very good. So you've made the trip up for the North Coast National? Yes we did, uh, well down actually, it's a long grind, grind down the hill from yes, of course. Ebor. I had to um, think about that. Yeah, yeah no it's, it's, it's a long long grind but anyway. How uh, many cattle we, did you bring? We bought uh, 11 mature cattle and two calves. And have you shown any yet? Uh, no, that's today. So we'll, we're fingers crossed. The judge looks kindly upon our cattle and puts them up. And you've got pole Hereford? Yeah, we have got pole Herefords, yes. We've uh, bought 11 out of our um, registered herd of 500 females. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And is this the first time you're coming to the North Coast National or have you been supporting it for many years? No, we came down last year because after the floods we thought Lismore needed a bit of support. We found that the people are really friendly and easy to get on with and encourage you to be here. So we thought, well, if they're that keen, we'll put in the grind and come back down the hill and support them again. That's Kim Honan and Tara Coles there uh, talking to some of the punters at the North Coast National in Lismore, which is on at the moment. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, half past 12. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Shortly we'll be hearing about World Health Summits underway in Berlin at the moment. They're trying to stop or reduce the spread of pandemics and uh, they've got some training for vets, help vets to detect uh, the uh, first signs of infectious diseases in the field, things like, um, you know, COVID or uh, foot and mouth disease or bird flu, things that can uh, spread to humans as well. So we'll hear a bit more about that from the University of Sydney shortly. But um, before we do anything else... It's time to get some news headlines now from Adam Story. Good afternoon. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. you made it back. <coughs> I was going to say, feeling much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lie. There you go. <laughs> yes, a lot better now. Uh, now we're better. There we are. Uh, uh, the imminent uh, ground assault on Gaza from the Israeli Defence Forces. Well, what can you say? It's imminent. The Defence Minister has addressed troops uh, at the border uh, with Gaza. They uh, told them to be ready, uh, carry on training while there's time, get organised, be prepared. So whether that, uh, I mean, I think uh, tomorrow would mark uh, a fortnight yeah. since the yeah. uh, since the terrorist attacks. Mm. Uh, Have they opened up the the border at Rafa and allowed uh, the humanitarian aid in? No, I haven't got any information on that. I don't think they have, actually. No, No. uh, late last night they were talking about it, Mm. uh, but still still no opening. Uh, Israel has agreed to allow any aid shipments through that crossing. Mm. Mm. Uh, But they want to inspect them all. Yes, Mm. Uh, and there is is trucks on standby ready to go in. Mm. Uh, The US president, meanwhile, has addressed US citizens from the 
Oval Office, and he says more support is needed for both Israel and Ukraine to ensure uh, the America's national security. He says he's going to send a new funding uh, request to Congress. Uh, which but they is, don't have a Speaker of the House. They don't have a Speaker of the House. <laughs> they can't uh, vote on anything. That's right. They already blocked further uh, funding to Ukraine in um, the previous budget session. So, but if he ties it to Israel, uh, maybe that fund. If the if the funding bill mm. is for both of them, uh, maybe that's how he how he gets it through. Maybe the, maybe the Republicans will jump ship and vote vote up a Democrat as a House. Well. Member. The guy with the most Anything votes at the moment, is, he doesn't have the majority, Jeffries, is, yeah. is Joaquin yeah. Jeffries. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, there has been a light plane crash um, in Victoria. Now, paramedics have treated uh, and taken seven people to hospital. It was a plane carrying 17 people. They were all skydivers. Uh, now, it's made a landing at a place called Leopold, uh, uh, it landed on Barwon Heads Road. Uh, it crashed off the runway about 8 o'clock this morning. Um, the plane had taken off from the airfield and landed in uh, another field when the plane lost power. Now, all the patients are in a stable condition. They do have serious injuries. Uh, no confirmed fatalities at this stage. Uh, paramedics assessed another 10 people from the aircraft at the scene, but they did not require emergency treatment or transport. Uh, now, transport for New South Wales shows 37 people have been killed in car crashes on the Appen Road at Woolundilly in the last 30 years, and the most recent fatality was a teenager who lost his life last week. Now, he was a pedestrian. He was getting off a school bus at the time. Now, the Chief of the Road Safety Centre says uh, millions of dollars have been spent on safety upgrades and the Department of Transport is considering more safety improvements, but there is concern that those safety improvements don't actually take in um, pedestrian safety upgrades. Mm. Uh, so the local MP, Greg Warren, says he's going to approach the Minister for Transport uh, to call for direct improvements for pedestrian safety. And 10 members of the Water Police have been given bravery awards for their roles in an 80-hour rescue operation off the north coast uh, last year. It was uh, deemed the longest retrieval completed by any Water Police unit in Australia. They rescued two men in their 70s who were sailing from New Zealand and activated an emergency beacon about 1,100 kilometres uh, northeast of Sydney when their yacht was damaged in mm. Severe weather. I remember that. It was almost, yeah, it was yeah. incredible to get them off the boat. Yeah. Considering it the was, conditions. It was pretty hairy. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, 50 years since the Opera House mm. officially opened its doors. Uh, you, were you taken there as a young lad? On yes. School excursions? I was there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was there before it had been finished. So okay. I remember half, <laughs> half of it, only half of it was there. So we went on a visit to have a look at it. So right. It was, yeah. But it was amazing. And at the yeah. time, to yes. see it, yeah. and in construction, because it mm. was incredible. Yeah. I only saw the completed uh, <laughs> film. You know, I'd actually, you know, I actually never went inside of that main concert hall until I was in my 30s. Oh, like, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, we got ripped off. We'd, every time we the school excursion, you'd end up seeing something at the playhouse. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we weren't quite again. up there for, oh, uh, no. you know, the main... Well, you know, I mean, considering your track record at school, yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, that's it. <laughs> we, got the, we got the dregs when it came to the school excursions. Yeah. Can't let those those blokes in there. No, no. <laughs> Heavens no. above. Well, it was after they took us to see Storm Boy. Um, and there was a, basically a riot in the cinema. <laughs> 
And that was it. He was known as the Great Storm Boy Riot of 79. <laughs> no more school excursions with this lot. That's it. <laughs> Amazing they let you out. Well, yeah. The manager just threatened to turn the film off and kick us. <laughs> it got that bad, didn't it? But you had to have a bit of a laugh. Mate, mm. you can get 300 kids with bags of, bags of popcorn. Uh, it's just you're asking for trouble. Watch out, yeah. yeah. And not to mention the Maltesers. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, great film, though. They come a, they become a bit of a projectile. <laughs> yeah. <after> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, the other thing was it wasn't just our school. It was a mixture oh, of schools, and that's where the trouble broke So out. it was yeah. a rumble. And it was years later, <laughs> years later, a friend of mine worked out. He was also in the same cinema at the time. Same time. Another school. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and he nearly got expelled too. Yes. <laughs> all right. Okay, well, uh, uh, that's a story for another day. Then were the days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. All right. Adam's story, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be back with more different news at one o'clock. Not about his school excursions. It's uh, coming up to 23 minutes to one. On the country hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You unpark at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Now, so we're st- warming up, and uh, but the, the concern is that uh, there will be more sort of windy weather on the weekend, and that's what the firefighters are worried about, particularly those fires on the mid-north coast. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Uh, yeah, because, uh, uh, well, we expect a... The next cold front to cross the state between, say, Saturday into Sunday, and with that, we expect increasing heat and uh, f- f- combined with the fresh westerly winds and the dry surface conditions will uh, bring um, spiking of fire danger conditions, especially on Sunday, where we may see uh, widespread uh, extreme fire danger conditions in many parts of the northeast and central east and northern inland. Um, over those areas which are already fire affected and uh, so that that really doesn't really look good and even worse condition uh, even bad news uh, even more you know, another bad news is that we expect a similar uh, bad weather con- uh, fire weather conditions to develop again on Wednesday with the, the passage of the second cold front so First cold front mainly affecting the, uh, the eastern parts on Sunday and second one on Wednesday. And with that, you know, they, you know, return over these, uh, you know, uh, as elevated fire danger conditions. So it doesn't really look good. Okay, so, there this, so there's a cool change coming through, uh, bringing the temperature down, but no rain. And that then it's going to spike up the wind and, and warm up again. So that's the, that's the problem? That's right, yes. So we did the first cold front, yes, uh, we expected the temperatures to rise up to, say, high 30s to even close to 40s in the west tomorrow, and the heat will be shifting to the northeast by two, uh, uh, by Sunday, and that means over those areas where we are seeing you know, ongoing fires, we may see the temperatures rising up to, say, high 30s. Uh, and mid to high 30s in many parts and combined with the gusty westerly winds, as I said. And um, the westerly changes will not completely cool down the temperatures before the next front comes. And with that, you know, we expect a similar spiking of heat as well, and also combined with the gusty winds. So, yes, it really doesn't look good. And also those two changes, as you mentioned, are quite dry. So although there is some risk of uh, severe thunderstorms about uh, the, uh, 
about the southern inland and the parts of the southern ranges and slopes tomorrow. It will be mainly uh, dry thunderstorms and with a very little rainfall, at all, uh, if at all, and mainly uh, and it may pose uh, a risk of uh, wind gust and dry lightning, unfortunately. Oh, okay, dry lightning. And, it's, and um, these changes and, and uh, the, the fire warnings, are they expect, expected to affect other parts of the state as well? Um, well, for tomorrow, we actually expect the forecast to be about the central western slopes and plains, and then before shifting into the northeast on Sunday. Um, so, um, for as for the current fire danger is concerned, we expect uh, yeah extreme fire dangers for uh, upper central western plains tomorrow, and then these uh, conditions will be shifting to Great Hunter and Sydney and northern slopes and the northwestern. On uh, Sunday, and the mid-north coast regions will be marginally extreme, but still remaining in the high end of the high fire dangers. Okay, and you mentioned so we're going to sort of be in a bit of a roller coaster, and then back again into bad fire weather situation on Wednesday for the mid-north coast and and elsewhere, as well on the uh, on the sort of eastern side of New South Wales. Is there any reprieve in sight after that at all in terms of weather? Uh, well, on Thursday, maybe we may see the relief in terms of temperatures, but it will be still windy and gusty with the fresh southerly winds on Thursday. Then perhaps, uh, you know, beyond the Thursday, maybe, for, um, I mean, towards the end of the week, you know, we may see the easing of winds and perhaps that might uh, de- decrease the fire danger conditions, maybe, and bring some relief, maybe, but... Again, you know, between the weekend and the first half of the new week, um, probably not, not much relief, maybe apart from some brief interlude of, you know, be- between the two spikes of the fire danger conditions. Okay, and not much rain on the way by the sound of things at all. No. No, no. All right. Okay, Juan, thanks for that. My pleasure. And stay listening to ABC Local Radio in regards to the changes, uh, those the weather and fire conditions as well. So uh, make sure you're listening to ABC Local Radio for the latest fire and weather information. It's uh, coming up to 18 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio New South Wales. Water carters are working around the clock as drought conditions start to bite across New South Wales' Hunter Valley. The uh, Department of Primary Industries has declared parts of the Upper Hunter, Musselbrook and Singleton LGAs as drought affected, whilst parts of the Lower Hunter are in drought. Brankston Greeter water carter Alex Merrick has filled tanks and dams across the Hunter Valley. He's told Giselle Wakatama he's making up to 15 deliveries a day and there's a waiting list because the demand is so high. Uh, there, there is. At the moment, we're sort of seven to ten days, yeah, unfortunately. We'd love to be able to do it quicker, but, yeah, with everyone being so short, we are yeah, in high demand. So you're working around the clock. I mean, deliveries each day. How many are we trying to get to? Uh, we try and do 12 people a day, and I'm actually starting an afternoon shift. So That'll expand it the then. Night. Gee, working into the night. So that'll expand yeah. it to, to what? Um, so we work now from six till five, and we're going to run one from five till ten. What are they saying? Obviously, gee, the, the smiles on their faces when you get there, but uh, you, you see it uh, on the ground. Uh, how tough are things? Uh, yeah, I think with all the rain we've had, everyone's maybe got a little bit used to having water with all the rain, but now that it has dried up, yeah, 
people are just not realising to check their tanks. That's probably one of our biggest things, reminding people to check them early. Alex, um, you sound like a youngster, but uh, have you seen it this dry in your time? Um, not with the water card. I've been doing it now for 12 years, and this is actually worse than the last drought we had. Well, we've actually had people even now asking us to do dam fills. Um, that last time in the 2019-20 drought, we weren't asked for that for like tw- nearly two years into the drought before people were having dams dry up, whereas even now they're actually starting to dry up far. That's scary. I was up at my mum's where at O'Campton, just out of Maitland, and it's, yeah, it's starting to bite there. And just how, as I said, the brown, it's just a totally different landscape. It is, yeah. And that's, that's the other thing with the brown. I'm a bit concerned about the bushfires I'm sure we're going to see this year. Talking about uh, the situation there, now the water storages are uh, tracking down across the region. Chinchester Dam is of the greatest concern. It's down 42% on last year. Hunter Water Managing Director Darren Cleary says shallow water storages and high evaporation rates are taking a bit of a toll. They certainly are. It's been not just unseasonably dry, but also unseasonably warm. Uh, and our water storages are dropping, and they can drop very quickly. Uh, so at the moment, we're dropping at about 1% per week. Luckily, we're coming off a very wet period, so our storages were at a healthy level, um, and they're now down at around 85%. Uh, but what that means, if, if, if this hot, dry weather continues, we could be down around 60% by March of next year, which is the point at which we start looking at bringing in water restrictions. Darren Cleary from Hunter Water. There are plans to build a desalination plant at Lake Macquarie to help drought-proof the region, and construction is expected to start on that late next year. You can meet, read more about that story online at ABC Newcastle. Uh, the drams dry up as the drought takes hold on uh, ABC News website. It's uh, 14 minutes to one here on The Country Hour. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The World Health Summit's underway in Berlin this week, trying to stop or reduce the spread of pandemics. The University of Sydney is launching a training package designed to help vets and animal handlers detect and prevent infectious diseases in the field. Associate Professor Navneet Dand from the Sydney School of Veterinary Science has launched a free training program that will help vets around the globe to detect, prevent and contain infectious diseases. Professor Dan says that the risk of zoonotic diseases transferring from livestock and wildlife to humans is increasing as shown by the COVID-19 pandemic and vets at the front line can prevent diseases wiping out livestock or then infecting humans. Yes, absolutely. And, um, um, you know, we have been working on it for uh, three, four years, uh, specifically on this project. So we created a, a consortium of epidemiologists from all vet schools of Australia and New Zealand, um, and animal health experts from uh, on, you know our target countries in the Asia Pacific region. Um, the aim, uh, as you mentioned, to um, tackle emerging infectious diseases, zoonotic diseases, but also on transboundary diseases like foot and mouth disease, uh, African swine fever, and other diseases that affect only animals but cause, obviously, um, huge economic and health impacts in animals. So we um, developed a training package um, consisting of around 36 uh, training modules. So the idea is you're animal detective. So you see these diseases, you've got the, the template in front of you, the, the training course to help you to say, that looks like something that's really nasty. 
Yes, so there are two aspects to it uh, broadly. Uh, I, we, um, when we say animal disease detectives, um, they, we want them to be able to detect diseases early and, uh, um, if, you know, and then contain them, contain their spread so that um, they, can't, they are unable to spread from one farm to others or, or you know, between, from one village to others. So um, it's like a police detective. So if you think, take the analogy of police detectives, you know, they conduct surveillance to identify criminals and the terrorists before they get a chance to strike, right? You know, in that situation, how to neutralize them and to limit the damage. Now, it's uh, post-COVID, uh, we saw the discussion about pangolins or possibly bats in the uh, in the wet market in China was where the spread, they think, of COVID first started. We're also seeing bird flu and uh, lots of deaths in Asia in humans from bird flu and it's spreading, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so was it was it uh, post-COVID where you really saw that this gap was there or was it the bird flu? What was the catalyst for this, this uh, need to yeah. fill a gap? Yeah, now that's a good, very good question. It, we, I conducted a project for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. So they conducted a, they asked me to conduct a review of the existing training programs. So there are programs that exist in several countries to do the same thing. And there, there are several gaps that we, there were several good things about them, but we also identified these gaps that uh, there were uh, lack of quality training resources. There was a lot of variability uh, in how the training was conducted. And the pedagogical approaches, the teaching methods that we identified um, were quite sort of old style. You know, this happened in um, 2018 and 2019. And in 2019, we prepared this proposal and submitted it and was successful around December 2018, 19, without realizing that this will be become even more important in 2020 when the COVID happened. So this this was already planned in 20, 2019 uh, before COVID happened, but uh, its relevance has become um, more apparent to general public and uh, policymakers since then. Uh, we have been calling for uh, this issue for several years. We have been calling. Um, policymakers, funding agencies to tackle these diseases that uh, emerge in animals and then spill over to humans. So you think about it, you know, if you want to detect diseases that spill over to humans early on, so you will have to look for, you know, we are looking for them in humans, but, you know, you have to look for them upstream in the animal populations before they spill over to humans. Um, so that to, so that the damage is limited and they can be tackled early on. And in Australia, we're uh, you know uh, we're vulnerable to things like foot and mouth disease. We're seeing the Hendra disease, which is a zoonotic as well, from the bats to the horses to humans. And you know if uh, you know foot and mouth disease can get in the pigs and uh, get into our livestock that way, you know via mosquitoes. So you know, I mean. You you do need to have the vets or the or the animal professionals, you know, to have a close eyes to say um, uh, we need to quarantine this. This is a problem. Yeah, absolutely. You need the uh, workforce um, to be able to do these things to be able to detect them early on, and then if they if the diseases occur, to um, control them or tackle them or to conduct risk assessments. And uh, fortunately, many our our 
veterinarians are quite well trained and uh, i hope that a similar training program for veterinarians in australia is established um, there is uh, many many of our state governments are in touch with us i, I would call the state governments and the department of agriculture and the and, and the australian government to establish uh, a similar program in australia that strengthens the capacity of our veterinarians to um, tackle these diseases we unfortunately we don't have foot and mouth disease that you mentioned we don't have these many of these diseases we, uh, but they are at our doorstep that's Professor Navneet Down from the University of Sydney. We're talking about uh, animal diseases. The New South Wales government are attempting to combat feral pig numbers across the state with a new initiative. The uh, state's first feral pig coordinator has been announced this week to lead the project, which will see three landscape control zones form. They'll be in the Riverina, the northwest and western New South Wales. Local Land Services feral pig coordinator Beck Gray spoke to Ondine Slack-Smith about the program's priorities. The main aim of the New South Wales feral pig program is to reduce the impacts that feral pigs have on agriculture and the environment. The last couple of years have been really conducive to feral pig population expansion and we've seen that across the state and this is an opportunity to to really dedicate some money at some effective control uh, statewide. And how are you going to go about reducing the impacts of these feral pigs? The control effort needs to increase in line with the population increase. So uh, collaboration with landholders doing coordinated and integrated pest control. Uh, We've got three landscape scale project areas as as, uh, funded projects where we can really go through and and do that broad scale integrated control programs, aerial and ground control uh, attack. And it really is working with landholders to to work together with their neighbours and do some effective control for feral pigs to manage those impacts. Out of those aerial and ground control, is there one of those that is most effective? No, look, integrated control is, is the key, is no single uh, control method is, is going to be, you know, the, the silver bullet. There isn't one of those in feral pig management. So using multiple control tools is, is the key message. What are going to be your key priorities in your role as the coordinator of this program? I think the the best thing about this role is I get to work with regional staff across local land services, but also other agencies, public land managers and private land managers, to to really look at what's happening statewide. We can we can combine our programs and make sure that that coordination happens. And when we're doing work in a certain area, we can make sure that 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 you know becomes a broad scale approach. Is there a key goal or a KPI that your department has set? No, look, we, we don't want to aim, uh, you know, it's not about numbers, it's about reducing the impact. So our, our focus is getting out with landholders, collaborating with them, making sure that we can provide them with as much support to be able to continue this uh, feral pig management uh, past next year and, and keep it as, as an operation that they can continue and kind of integrate into their annual operations on farm. When do you expect to be getting out with landholders? 
We've already started and, uh, and we've got uh, 99, I think at, at the moment, planned awareness or training events coming up around the state. That's Beck Gray, who's a feral pig coordinator for the local land services, speaking there with Ondine Slack-Smith. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, four minutes to one. Shortly we'll have market information, but before we do that, uh, get a plan and stick to it. That's the advice of an experienced farmer as the dry times are gripping the uh, parts of New South Wales once again, or quite a few parts of New South Wales, actually. Glenn Innes, cattle producer Ian Firth, has weathered his fair share of good times and bad, but he's always had a bit of a plan to follow. He sat down with Lara Webster to talk about his own strategies when it comes to getting through drought, but uh, first he filled her in on the conditions at his place. So we got two properties, um, one on very light granite soils out to the east of Glen. Um, yeah, we've been feeding them for going on eight weeks now, mm. through so, well, just since just before they started carving. And then um, the home block has held up very well. Um, we rotational graze, and um, we've still got feed coming on to what was green feed but it's hayed off now and the flats are still shooting after the cattle go through so we're getting some recovery in those areas. You mentioned there the calving I imagine of course that's putting extra pressure on your cows too once they've got calves and they're lactating so how do you try and ensure they're in the best possible position with those calves as they go forward into this period? Uh, we, we actually hit them pretty hard with cotton seed mm-hmm. and and actually increased their body score coming in the carving. We were a bit, we were a bit worried uh, starting to feed too early with the cotton seed just in case we got the calves too big inside. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we're happy with where they are. They're, they're strong store condition at present, probably not as good as we'd like, but very strong store. Um, so that's we're happy with that. And, um, you know, we just see how we go. We, we've got got feed up our sleeve for, for another... Um, two months. How have you gone accessing feed? Have you had to go too far afield? We know when it comes to hay that's a little more difficult to buy but you mentioned cotton seed and those sort of things so how have you gone sourcing your feed? Uh, cotton seed we, we, we actually bought ordered our first in April our first load, second load once we made once we got that on the ground in August and saw what was happening we went again in August so we did get it a bit bit better than what the prices are now definitely um hay wise we didn't have a lot in storage and we've been able to source some um some new straw barley you know nice clean barley straw which has gone in the shed for um, future use too that's glenn Ennis farmer ian firth uh, it's time for markets to griffith Good afternoon. Lamb numbers increased to 8,000 and this included 4,800 new season lambs. The quality was fair to good, some trades were lacking cover and there was a good line-up of heavy and extra heavy weights. Some of the new season lambs were starting to dry off. The market was firm on the trades while heavy and extra heavy lambs sold to stronger trends. New season trades 22 to 24 kilos, 113 to 130 averaging between 500 and 540 cents. The heavyweights 24 to 26, 123 to 144, 26 to 30, 144 to 164, and extra heavies reached 174. The range between 510 and 540. 
Old trades, 85 to 111 or 420 to 450 cents. Heavyweights, 110 to 144. The 26 to 30 kilos, 140 to 168. And extra heavies again, 173. They average around 500 cents. Hoggets were firm, reaching 68. Mutton was slightly cheaper. They sold from 20 to 57 dollars for all weights, averaging 80 cents to 140. And this has been Graham Richard. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's time for the news now. It's one o'clock.